and welcome to Etc. Etc. with Og Stone. That's me. I'm taking over from Southpaw. Though he still might come back on as a guest, guest host every now and then. Don't worry, I've got an excerpt from his latest story for y'all. Recently, I put out a memoir called Nick Cave's Bar, which is about the time in 1999 when a complete stranger told me that Nick Cave owned a bar in Berlin. And without doing any further research whatsoever, my best friend Andy and I traveled from Boston, Massachusetts to Germany to try and find it. This was the days before we were all on the internet all the time, so like, even if we asked Jeeves, does Nick Cave own a bar in Berlin, there's a good chance that Jeeves wouldn't know. Anyway, we thought we'd get off the plane, ask which way to Nick Cave's bar, someone would point us there, and we'd go live it up for the rest of our vacation. But what actually followed were nine days of confusion, thwarted plans, and perpetual drunken misery, including a a two-and-a-half-day absinthe hangover that saw us wind up in Prague. And for years afterward, we had no idea if Nick Cave ever did own a bar in Berlin. I was telling this story live back in 2019, and I hope to continue to do so, but then the pandemic hit. Luckily, a friend of mine recorded the very first show at Pete's Candy Store in Brooklyn, so I've put that out with some extra material as an album. You can get over at Bandcamp and on Apple Music and all those, just not Spotify. I also wrote it up as a book with a lot more detail, and I've been getting some really nice compliments about that. Louder Than War just gave it a great review, calling it hilarious, chaotic, and character-filled. You can get the book on all the sites, and some very cool independent bookshops around the world are carrying it. City Books in Hove, England, and Happy Valley in Melbourne, Australia. That's pretty awesome. If you know of any cool record or bookshops that I should try and get to stock it, just let me know. And I recently found out about a bar in West Berlin in the 80s called Rizico that Nick Cave used to hang out at. He didn't own it, but I think this is where the rumor of Nick Cave's bar came from. And it was so much more than that. Blixa Bargeld from Neubauten used to bartend there, and I spoke with Blixa and Mark Reeder and some others used to work and hang out at Rizico for a piece that I published on The Quietest a few weeks ago. So check that out, some truly wild stories in there. Before we get to our main interview today, here's the clip of the latest Southpaw story I promised you. What if, instead of Bob Denver getting marooned on that island, What if it was John? I mean, he would annoy the hell out of everyone playing his acoustic guitar all the time, singing about getting back to West Virginia. Landlocked West Virginia. And leaving on a jet plane when there's no such thing in sight. I mean, Maroon 5 really missed a trick here, not calling themselves Maroon 7. Adding two additional members and each dressing up as the cast of Gilligan's Island, you know? But what if they remade the show with all musicians? I mean, not Maroon 5, of course. They had their chance. But like for Ginger, get Jerry Hallowell, Ginger Spice, you know? Woo! 
Marianne, played by Marianne Faithful. The professor is Professor Griff from Public Enemy. Hmm. Gets a little tougher after those. I mean, the skipper? Skip to my Lou. Lulu, maybe? And who would play the howls, you know? Allen Ginsberg? Doing both roles? He'd be out of breath. Because you need two of them. You know, double the fun. How about four then? You know, double the fun again. Like twice the impact of that chewing gum commercial. You know who chews gum and has the same last names? Howling at the moon, the Ramones. This could have been a special project for them, you know, like in the late 80s. I mean, where do you go after Ramones mania? They get shipwrecked on an island. I think they'd they'd want to be marooned with Gilligan himself. I mean, no offense to John Denver, but like I, I could see them all, you know, switching their leather jackets to Gilligan's outfit, you know? Or I guess like the Ramones might dig it if Tom Hanks was there with the castaways. Of course, you know, before the film Castaway, back in Hanks' comedy days. Bosom buddies, the burbs, you know, triple B. Big? The quadruple. Unless, like, maybe the Ramones were going to do a, a John Denver covers album. They get stranded on this island and John Denver himself is teaching them the tunes, you know? Professor Griff works out a way to build a recording studio. Out of coconuts, of course. I mean, this could be a big hit for the Ramones. They're all John Denver covers record. West Virginia isn't that far from New York City. The Lower West Side, you know. Though Denver's in Colorado. I mean, I never understood that. Why was he going to West Virginia in the first place? Colorado's the complete other way. So I guess it was Thurston Howell the third, you know? And for New York City in the late 80s, I mean, you know, before we get to that island, well, of course it's going to be all about Sonic Youth. Thurston Moore the third. And like if Allen Ginsberg doesn't want to do it, Kim Gordon could play his wife on the show too. There's a whole lot more to that story and 53 other absurd tales over at the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast, which you can find at youngsouthpaw.com and all the podcast places. And now, our guest today is one of my favorite songwriters, a great lyricist with a killer sense of melody, Mr. Martin Newell. This is my eighth or ninth interview with Martin. I did a bunch for The Quietest starting in 2012 when the Cleaners from Venus tapes started getting reissued. And I also did pieces on them for Shindig and The Big Takeover. And on my very first podcast, The Counterforce, which is still up, has us talking about his Greatest Living Englishman album. And now the follow-up to that, the Off-White album, is getting reissued in a couple weeks. And that has some of my favorite of his songs on it. Good Night Country Girl and The Girls in the Flat Upstairs. 
It's always a pleasure to talk to Martin, and he always has a ton of great stuff to say. So let's get to it. All right. We're here today with Mr. Martin Newell. How you doing, Martin? Hello, everyone in podcast land. Yes, I'm tired, actually, uh, because I, all I've been doing is recording and recording and writing and recording because uh, that's kind of what I do. It's like a hedgehog goes burrowing or something like that or foraging for stuff. I go recording now. I just record. I mean, lockdown, you know, hasn't really been too much hardship. I've written stuff and I've and I've recorded stuff and then I've recorded more stuff and written stuff. When I got sick of that, I've just written stuff. And suddenly a year's gone by. <laughs> And I've had a book out, <laughs> made yes. all these tracks, and got about 28 tracks, of which we will pick 14 for the new album, which is as yet untitled. But there is much coming up, you know. Yeah, rock and roll yeah. hedgehog. Yeah, there is much coming up soon. I think in this in this next, uh, I mean, it was all going a bit bonkers before lockdown, really. You know, we had a film premiere. Yes. In the West End of London. And then they showed it in New York at that place at UC, what is it, University of New York. NYU, yeah, I was there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, what, you were in New York at the time? I, I was uh, in Connecticut about an hour and a half outside, so I went, took the train in. Right. Uh, yeah, because they, they showed me pictures of the audience, which was great. And uh, I couldn't believe it, really, because I'd been in the West End of, you know, I'd done a pre when Graham, the filmmaker, this is the film... Um, upstairs planet and he said oh would you come along to the london premiere i'm thinking oh what would it be to be some the ritz or it be somewhere you know out of you know out of town not you know or off broadway as you call it in in america uh, or, uh, and it was right in the center of the west end in london's oldest most prestigious cinema i mean it wasn't the leicester square odeon but <laughs> You know, it was much nicer. It was it was, it was the, the film, first moving cinema in London, which had shown in 1896 the Lumiere Brothers uh, Cinematographe or Cinematographique, whatever it was, complete with the machine and everything which it housed. And then it ran as a cinema for many, many years until something like the, the 1980s. Then it took a break, but they never, they kept the, they turned it into a lecture theatre, but they kept the integrity of the cinema. So when, 30 years later, they decided to restore this cinema, all the carvings and its basic grandeur were still there. So you've got this very lovely little antique cinema, which was, which was actually a theatre built in 1860 before that in Regent Street in the heart of London. You can see the BBC from there if you stand outside the door you don't even need a telescope or anything. And, and uh, <laughs> I couldn't believe this. Stuff. You know, what am I doing here to Graham? And he said, oh, we, you know, they liked the idea of the film. We got this film that's very, very DIY looking. It's the DIY film it's about a DIY guy. And we're in the West End. And, you know, I had people around here saying, oh, Martin, how's your, your little film going? And I say, oh, well, we've got to show it tonight. So, oh, what a premiere is it? Will you be showing it somewhere in Colchester? I said, no, we're in London. Oh, I see. Where's that? I said, well, we're in the West End. We've got a West End premiere. I said, well, where's it going after that? I said, well, I thought it was going to Berlin, but apparently um, it's going to New York next, I found. And I said, really? Where in New York? Brooklyn or somewhere like that? I said, um, it's on Broadway somewhere. And yeah. people are like, clang. <laughs> I fucking loved it. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, they just look at me. You can smell the burning circuitry as they look at me. <laughs> now, there's two documentaries, right? Or there was another one in the works as well. Oh, there's more than that. It's, it's like you wait all your life for a film to come along, a four come along at once, like buses, like London buses, you know, they all come around the corner at once. What happened next is that the film which we were originally going to be shown by James Sharp, who's a you know a really good director, but he's, he's he's more more conventional, I suppose, than Graham. I lost your audio. Okay, yeah, we've got this film called the The Jangling Man. Yes. And that's the next one. And that's, I think it's about 90 minutes, but it's become a bit more, it was going to be a 20 minute quick documentary for Captured Tracks to use for the greatest team in Englishman back in 2018. And then 2018 came and went and 2019 was just coming and going. And we were all set to go for 2020. And guess what happened? So now three years later, and I, I know Films take even longer than, than Eagles albums or Tears for Fears even, you know, three months on the snare drum. That's a legend. But, um, you know, the time's just passed. It. It was, it was, I'd have been much more impatient if I was younger, but time goes quick, quickly when you're older, which is a drag. But, um, it, you know, suddenly we, we thought they were going to get it out on the 26th of March, but both the directors, the American guy, uh, and, and James, that's Jim, and and, uh, and James here, got COVID. Oh. James right. got it because his mother works as a nurse or something like that um, here. And he recovered from it pretty quickly. He's, he's back from it. But um, Jim is taking a little bit longer. He, he's, he's okay. He's going to be all right, but he needs to rest. We're, so we're, in filmmakers' words, a few a few days behind which in everyone else's world is, I don't know, probably be ready by about 26, I don't know, 2060 or something. I, no, they, they think it will be ready quite soon. It's got to be because it's supposed to accompany the release of the Off-White album, which, which is out on the 26th of March. Quite apart from that, though, there is a director in this country called Michael Cumming, who back in 2003, let me get this right, 2003, when I was 50, I, having not done any gigs for years because I'd been a writer, or I'd not done any music gigs, I decided to do a thing called The Golden Afternoon. Mm. The first ever Golden Afternoon. He came along with a crew and also had a camera from a director I knew here and filmed this thing with multiple cameras. And a couple of bits got posted up on YouTube uh, and it kind of got forgotten about. And then suddenly he discovered it. And during lockdown, as so many directors and writers and other people thought, I know what I'll do. I'll tidy up my cupboard. <laughs> he found this, did a beautiful job of it. And it's about, I don't know, an hour, an hour and 15 of me with Nell and, and, and uh, Graham doing a kind of best of up till then you know miss van houten's coffee shop bits and pieces of this and that bits and pieces of radio automatic uh it was a it was a long long a live beautifully filmed one june afternoon at colchester art center which is my favorite gig i didn't think i'd ever see it but it's done wow it's ready 
and it's and, it, and we're, we're waiting because there's now this queue up of films. It's only etiquette because James has been <laughs> his film, so we can, we can't go until until we've until captured tracks of saying this thing. And not, there's been a lot of interest in the Jangling Man, and uh, the stories are various, but there's stories of a of, of a well known company that does films you know on on the network pictures on the network you know that sort of thing mm. there there's there's talk about them there's also a cinema chain and of course that that's before we even go to the dvd or anything else so that's quite exciting because they've got a lot of people in it they've got you know they've got mac demarco and have you seen a trailer for it i haven't no they got Mac DeMarco and Stevie Moore and quite a lot of people, you know, because, you know, the claims from Venus have become this this kind of thing, apparently, especially in America. Yeah. All, all, these are all people who have covered your stuff. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and not only that, but people who've claimed to have been or finally admitted to being influenced by me. But I mean, I don't mind. I'm not coming out to, you know, whoop anybody's ass or whatever you Americans do to each other when you're cross. And anyway, I'm not cross. I'm jolly pleased. <laughs> Actually, um, White Reaper were my big discovery of last year. I they were brilliant. They're fantastic. Yeah. I love that band. They they do an album called uh, Judy, a song called Judy French. Mm. Have you heard that? Yeah, it's excellent. It's such a great song. And the, and that's the kind of band that if I was young and they wanted a singer, that's the kind of band I think, yeah, that's the kind of band I like. A little bit androgynous, bit of makeup, sort of slightly bowish vocals in places as well. Mm. Guy's got a little yelp in his voice, you know. They're, they're very impressive. Yeah, I, I got all their records last year after I heard them. And then like a month or two later... I get a press release that they're recording a cleaner song. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Well, MGMT have done one, as you know. Yeah, they did the same. Cover. They did the same song, yeah. yeah. Well, the result of that is with, um, I don't know. My, I've got a music publishing company. I mean, Johnny, you know, we're not going anywhere near any record companies. We, we don't have to. Hmm. I mean, they batted. They didn't, I never tried to get involved in a record. I, I can't think of when I last sent any kind of a well it would have been a tape i suppose to a record company it would have been about i haven't actually approached anyone for a record deal in decades they come to me but very well. often i said very often i just say oh no you're all right i can i said well what are you going to do i said i don't know we'll we'll sell a few um we'll, we'll sell a few cassettes or something and they kind of don't believe me it's like yeah you know, like i said oh look sorry that's all email coming in um, I'm just batting it away. This, um, they say, well, you know, what, what do you do with a bloke who doesn't, won't take the money? You know, what, what, I just want to do music, you know, I'm, that, and I'm doing it and I'm selling it. So what do I need a record company for? It's like a shopping list that bands used to go, oh, yeah, well, that's right. Oh, yeah, publisher, yeah, agent, record company. I haven't got an agent because I don't do many gigs. I only, I only do them within cycling distance of my home, which can be up to 50 miles probably. But, but um, So I don't need an agent. I have got a music publisher. And I've been with them for years. They're called Notting Hill Music. 
they've got large parts of the old cleaners catalogue. But, you know, they look after me. And it's only a matter of time before one of them gets me a massive coverage because I'm, I think I, they actually understand me now. I said, look, if I wrote a song for, 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 for Bette Midler, would you have the power to get it to her? They said, we would if you did it, because that's the kind of pub, that's what publishers used to do. Mm. But I mean, Bette Midler probably doesn't feel like going out and gigging much either. She's, you know, but I, I really, really like her. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's only a matter of time for some of the songs that Richard Shelton did, you know, like the. All right. Yeah, because he's in he's a, in Hollywood now, but he's being more of an actor than a singer, but which is, you know, I don't know. I, I, sometimes you go and do your other thing, like I went and do poetry or writing, but uh, he's 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 being in quite a lot of films. And I, I don't always know the American name, the, the American names of them, but he's 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 a property now. And he's got a really good agent. Nice. That was yeah. Grenadine and Blue. Was that one of his? Yeah, Grenadine and Blue. He did that. Yeah, he did a whole album uh, with about five, five or six of my songs on a few yeah. years ago. Top Cat. And then he went out to America. Um, yeah, I think it might have been. It was Top Cat. Yeah. And I still punt songs at him. And one day he's going to have a really biggie with her. Because if I, if I, there are certain songs that I just couldn't sing. He has this kind of proper singer's voice. So speaking of covers, um, I kind of wanted to focus on the Off White album because that's getting reissued. But you don't, you haven't recorded. I mean, I've seen you do a few covers live, like uh, Life on Mars, Matt yeah. song. But uh, I do unusual covers. <laughs> what made you decide to record the Smith song? Some girls are bigger than others. <sighs> what did make me do that? I'm trying to think when it was. It was about. When did that come out? 1985 or six, wasn't it? Yeah, it would have been 86 that came out because I was working in a studio at the time. And, you know, I, I liked the Smiths a great deal. I don't know. I just got into the habit of occasionally busking it. When I was in France, I'd, I'd tune a guitar to a cleaner's tuning and see if I could play it. And I th it might have been Louis. Louis might have said, oh, we can put this. I said, what? Put a Smiths cover on my album. So Smiths was still a property then. I'm not sure if they'd quite broken up then when I did that album. When was that? 95? They might have done, actually. Yeah, they had probably broken up. Yeah, they broke up in 87. Yeah. Um, but they were still very much at the forefront, so I thought, well, okay, well, as long as we just chuck it away, just me and an acoustic guitar. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want... Because, you know, it'd been done as well as it could be. And not only that, but I do actually know what... Johnny Marr plays on that and I can just about get it but I didn't want to do what Johnny Marr was doing you know I just sort of I did what what would happen to that song if the cleaners had written it okay. which they didn't <laughs> is that the only cover you've put on an album hmm. uh, it might be yeah it might well, be it always stood out to me because of that I do lots. I do lots of cover versions when I'm in pubs and busking or something like that, mm. or or just when I'm at a gig. I think it's funny to do. I I, I do a Matt Monroe cover. Yes, I saw uh, that at the Golden Afternoon. Yeah, I do Matt Monroe cover. I do quite unusual covers of things. You know, I choose songs that you wouldn't necessarily strum with a guitar. And um, but I've I've got enough songs of my own. I don't have to do covers if I don't want to. 
Yeah. I, I don't, if, if I like a song that much, uh, uh, and I think the song is so perfect, I, I very often, I don't think there's anything I can bring to it that the artist and the writer and the producers haven't already done. I would just rather leave it where it is, you know, not disinter it. Not disturb it. Not disturb a sacred site. It's okay for me to throw it away live, but I don't think I ought to go and say, oh, by the way, I could, you know, have done that. I've got too many songs of my own. It's, it's like John Cooper Clark said to me, have you ever thought of writing a writer? You never write any fiction, do you, Martin? And I, I, I said, um, no, I said, <laughs> he said this was really funny, like a New Yorker kind of saying, no, there's way too much interesting stuff going on in the world without me making shit up. <laughs> but that's, that's what, that's why I do think that there's way too much interesting stuff going on in actual life without me making stuff up. <laughs> I, I don't read many novels either. I well, put it this way. I, I generally, I'm still working my way through the 19th century okay. <laughs> and a bit of the 20th century. What are some of your favorite novels? I, we've talked about Don Levy before, who I'm a big fan of. Uh, yeah, novels. Well, I, I do sort of like um, George Orwell a lot. That constantly comes back. But very often then his essays and his letters more more than... But uh, uh, one of the books that sort of changed me a bit was uh, reading 1984. I read that when I was 19. I can't think. I'd have to look and see what the what novels I read. I don't often read them. Okay. Or I have read them. I mean, in the past. Uh, oh, I mean, I like, there's an American writer called uh, Washington Irving that I really like. But I, I can't say I've read a novel by him, but I've, he, I've written lots of, read lots of short stories by him. There's a sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon, if you ever come across that. Oh, I don't know that. Well, it's, it's a book of his short stories. He traveled in England a lot. Okay. I think he was partly of English ancestry. So he, and that would have been a perilous undertaking in the early 19th century. You know, it had been a long sailing trip to England hmm. and he traveled extensively. And he is a really bright guy. You know, I, I love reading his stuff. He wrote Rip Van Winkle. Yes. And people who don't know that story. Uh, or, or they've just heard of it. They think it's about this guy who went to sleep for a hundred years. He didn't. He went to sleep for twenty years, and it was kind of um, it's an allegory, really. I, I, he he goes to sleep, and when he wake when he when he goes to sleep, there's a George the Third is on the is on the on the inside. Twenty years later, he wakes up, and the place is a bustling town rather than a sleepy backwater. And and George Washington is on the inside, and there's quite a bit of mysticism in it as well. Okay. I think it's the Catskill Mountains. He he kind of wakes up. He he sees these like not dwarfs exactly, but these small men, and they're having a bowl a thunderous bowling match in the in the Catskills, and uh, they're drinking some sort of liquor. And why they do this? And he thinks they're the ghosts of, um, I don't know, a Dutch navigator of, of some, you know, because the Dutch had had New York and all that area long before the British did. In fact, New York was called New Amsterdam, wasn't it at one point? Yep. <laughs> yeah. And so, 
they think it's an. A, a, they think he's like he. He must be in the early nineteenth, late eighteenth century. It would be the late eighteenth century when Americans had independence, wasn't it? it was seventeen ninety three, about the same time as the French one. Seventy six. Seventy six. Oh, it's earlier. So I, I can't know everything about everything, can I? But that's not bad for a limey, is it? Who's never studied it? So, um, so he's seeing the ghosts from maybe. 100 years earlier from the from the 17th century they're wearing galley gaskins and those dutch kind of crowned hats uh, and uh, he wakes up from this and goes down to the village where his his wife is dead and every you know everyone's dead <laughs> a few people remember him that's all a lot happens in 20 years mm. it's a, it's a, it's got a a little bit of the occult about it and mysticism which is why I turned it into a children's opera briefly because with Colin Towns, Colin Towns played with Gillen's band, but um, I think instead of spending his pop star money on what pop stars usually spend their money on, there was a graph in there's a pie graph. I'm sorry, big houses, expensive chicks, drugs, uh, rehab, you know, but very seldom do big rock stars or in big bands of that ilk spend their money sensibly but i think he he had himself he taught himself arrangements and gradually got an orchestra and set up a studio and, and, and went into jazz uh and you know he's quite he, he and he started doing film music some some quite famous series and films i didn't know you turned it into a children's opera. yes well because colin approached me because we had we shared the woman who ran his office was also managing my poetry career on the side. And she said, Martin, um, Colin's been commissioned to do the West 11 children's opera. Uh, do you fancy doing the libretto for it? And I said, yeah, I could have a go at it. And I said, is there a story? I said, no. And then at that time, uh, I think it was Lily's mum, my daughter's mother said, have you ever read Rip Van Winkle? And I said, no. And she passed me this children's book and it had, it had a, this Washington Irving story, which is how I discovered him. And there's um, this story about Rip Van Winkle. And it was beautifully written. His children ran wild as if they belonged to nobody. You know, he was quite a lazy man. His wife was understandably some, something of a term again, because you had to hold the whole place together. That he was this guy. The kids loved him, but he was sort of good for nothing. You know, he, when 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 he wanted to get away from the shouting and the yelling, he'd go up with his old dog and his musket into the into the Catskills for days. So he was kind of early hippie, I guess, of sorts. And and I thought this would be a good subject. And when I got challenged by the quite, it has to be said, middle class society who oversaw this this opera. They said, well, what's, I said, well, it's just a rattling good story. It's a short story by Washington Irving. But they said, well, why, why do you think it's relevant to now? And I'm thinking, these people. Okay, I said, look, it's a, it's, it's, I, I think it remains allegorical. It's like the difference between England in the 60s and England in the 1980s. You know, when you've got... Uh, or, 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 
or England in the 1980s and England now. When you, it's the difference between Thatcher and Blair. You've got two separate regimes. But in, in our case, I thought it was England was this kind of England swings and all the rest of it. And nice old Mr. Wilson. Then suddenly, 1977, and in comes Thatcher with a new broom sweeping everything in front of him, laying off people and <laughs> just, just being, you know, fairly, fairly challenging, really, to people who, who just had a bohemian sort of 60s and early 70s or grown up in that. Suddenly there was somebody cracking a whip and marching around saying money is good. The same thing happened in America, you know, it's Gordon Gecko stuff. So I thought that would be a good kind of um, comparison to draw. And anyway, they took that. So I wrote this opera and we got it done and they, they performed it four times and it was jolly good. And Colin wrote some great music for it and the lyrics were good. And it only that's what happens to operas. It nearly, nearly, nearly went to the Royal Opera House. Ah. The Royal Opera House expressed an interest. But I think what happened was the people, the parents and all the people who run this very good West 11 children's office, all from their hands. You know, they got, you know, they kind of um, they got very overheated and excited about it. And I think the thing just kind of vaporized in a, in a, in a, pile of steam really but that would have been nice to say i'd had something on at the royal opera house because i i don't like opera very much <laughs> which is why i thought i should maybe write one because i could probably do a better job of it i'm like that <laughs> speaking of the 60s i want to ask you I've, I've been on a big kinks kick lately i've watched a couple documentaries on youtube ah, the kinks, yeah. what are your thoughts on the kinks well i i liked them i'm, I'm not you know, I wasn't as influenced by them, or I don't think I was, um, as you might think. The Who were the people who influenced me. They wrote about English things, Pete Townsend and the Beatles. The Who and the Beatles between them made me think, and the small faces made me think that you should do kind of Englishy things. I mean, I, I didn't, like I'm constantly telling people, I didn't live in the deep south and and pick cotton and my woman didn't done left me or nothing like that i didn't sit on a porch with a you know strumming a guitar none of that happened to me i lived in an english suburban street and i thought that's what i should write about and pete townsend did it to a certain extent and the beatles did with penny lane it was kind of location you know you know familiar things and i want right from a very early age i wanted to do that and it wasn't till really later i thought oh yeah the kinks do that yeah. I do remember them being part of the soundtrack, but they weren't my, my main guys. But I did. I, I was always had a great affection for them. I can't say they were an influence, not initially. Or since. I just think that I'm mining the same vein as them, you know, the same very rich seam of of English experience and the standard, almost cliched, poetic dilemma or artistic dilemma of where you you see that the the country and the background you grow up in is, is disappearing as you get older. It's changing all the time and you rush around frantically taking Polaroids of it to, uh, to um, that dates me, doesn't it, Polaroids? Okay, it's instant snaps to, to kind of preserve it. And, and my sketches just happened to be pop songs because that was all I knew how to do at the time i was listening to a lot of slade yesterday were you a, you a slade yeah. fan? yeah i, I love bloody slade i thought they were great 
They were just so good. Such a great, happy, cheerful bunch of bastards. Yeah. Really. It's yeah, anything with Slade on, I'll watch because they're such good value. And uh, and Noddy Holder and Jim Lee, who were Wolverhampton, Walsall lads, that's black country as they call it. They're very clever boys. You know, they they weren't, they, they, they had this kind of glam rock, yobbish exterior, but they were they were pretty artistic. You listen to their stuff. It's very clever. Yeah. Really clever. Yeah, it's well put together and it rocks. It rocks like a bastard. It really does. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about the Off-White album that's going to be released. Yeah, the Off-White album. Go on. Let's, not, let's not convolute too much. Um, yes, it, it is out soon, yeah. Just tell me like where you were at going into making it. You've just had a big success with The Greatest Living Englishman. Um, I didn't see it as a big success because I lived in England and although I went out to Japan, it was, it all took time. You know, I was making it in 1993, uh, the greatest living Englishman. It came out at the end of 1983, October. And uh, the English reviewers, it has to be said, were their usual sniffy selves. They knew that I was from a band called the cleaners from Venus one or two of them knew that I'd, met, I'd written some quality pop songs. But the fact of the matter is I've never been a London guy. And if you're not hanging around drinking in the bars and hanging out with these people and nobody knows you, if you're not in a gang, you're not one of them. And nobody ever says that, but it is nonetheless true because it's not just me. It happens there's other people who just, to an extent, they were like that about XTC because XTC were, were, were Swindon boys. And I think Slade to an extent. People in the London Cognoscenti, mind you, London's going down a pan now because there's no grassroots venues anymore. And it's just got too middle class for its own good, really. But um, people who don't live in London, they don't, they, they, if they don't, if they go home every night, like the move used to, the move were right in the middle of swinging London, making great pop records. They just used to drive home to Birmingham every night. And, and I think the same with um, Terry Chambers of XTC said, you know, once he's got over that hill and saw Swindon, you know, in the, in the dip there, he thought he felt better, you know, because he, he, he liked the place. Like I like Colchester and, and Wivenow. And you don't want to hang around with a bunch of knobs, really, do you? So I just don't hang around with the fuckers. And, and uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm using bad language, aren't I? But, but they, they are sniffy with me. So I wasn't going back to the great Stephen Englishman. I wasn't really allowed to feel I'd had a success. I mean, there was one sniffy thing in one of the glossies saying, oh, and uh, this Martin Newell, who, who had this kind of nowhere bank called the Clinton's said, unexpectedly seems to be selling quite a lot of records in America. I'll tell you another example of that. John Waite. Do you know that name? I Ain't Missing You, a single oh, from the oh, 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I ain't missing you since you've been gone. <laughs> It was number one for like about two months in America or something like that. Yeah. He belonged to a band called, I think they were called The Babies, maybe, or Mighty, but I can't remember. But he was in a band that didn't really take off in England. And when he got that number one, the headline, or the, there was a sidebar on one of the tabloids, uh, the tabloids, and it said, Mr. Nobody is number one in America. I mean, what kind of fucking bastards is that? 
you know, they can't even support their home team who's gone out and scored a victory in big, important America. They can't even support that. So I wasn't expecting a miracle. So, and when I talked to Andy Parch, I said, what do I do next? We knew we'd made this, this really good album. And he said very sagely, get on with the next one, have something to give them when they ask. And that's what I did. And so pretty soon, uh, you know, at the end of 1993, I was already writing for the off white album. And we got delayed because that album should have come out in 1994. The story of the off white album is always of delay. I don't know why this happens in the music industry, but it wasn't a difficult second album or anything. Okay. And that, that's why I ended, it was Kevin Crace's idea to get Louis. And I thought that would be nice because I like French music. We'll get a, a Frenchman's overview uh, of of this, and of course we got the the strings, yeah. uh, which were great, and um, the the you know the, the 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 vocal being prominent above the mix, you know, not not being buried like under a load of indie guitars, but you know, being really like a chansonnier, like Leo Ferre or something. You see him if you look at that in your in your mind, you can see there's the orchestra, and then the singer, the narrator comes to the front of the stage and begins to tell you the story. And that, and the Off-White album is a kind of a, almost like an English chansonnier album. Predictably, the French liked it a great deal. And oddly enough, I got a very good review in no less organ than Liberation. Oh. And the reviewer was Nick Kent, oh, wow. who doesn't speak very good French, apparently, even though he is married to a French woman who, who is the TV presenter because she interviewed me once i'd never met nick but he gave the off-white album such a great review i had to have it translated because my french ain't good either but but i mean it's okay i could probably have struggled through it but it was much easier passing it to a french person and saying what does this say and uh he said <laughs> the english eh? what can you do with them and um basically it said you know forget blur and oasis if you want to hear english you should listen to this guy Nice. <laughs> yeah, which was great. That was the gist of it. He liked it. He really liked it. And from Nick Kent, that's uh, that's no small thing because he was actually a really good rock writer. He came from that classic NME of the 1970s where there were some genuinely great rock journalists around, people like Charles Shaw Murray, people who just loved the stuff, knew the stuff, hung out with the bands, occasionally lived the lifestyle. But, you know, they were fair enough. Fair enough, all of them. No, not all of them, but most of them. You and Louis Philippe worked quite well together. You both seem to enjoy making that record. From We did. Uh, it was a shame it was mired in a bit of, there was a bit of cash flow problems. You know, that's what happens sometimes with an indie label. It's not always the indie label's fault, but uh, there comes a point where an indie label is either going up or they're, they're struggling around. And sometimes at the end of the week, they don't always have the money. Hmm. And so we're thinking, God, I hope we're going to get this finished. I mean, it's no worse than happened to the zombies when they were making Odyssey and Oracle. I think Rod Argent and the boys had to put their hands in their pockets to finish that album with their own, their own cash. Such was, such was their record company's you know, lack of support for them at the time. Hmm. That's what I understood. They, they, you know, they were in Abbey Road, but there wasn't quite the money to finish that album. It's just just one of the great albums, isn't it? Mm. You know, it crosses all borders. I mean, it's very 
soft and pastoral English, and yet Captain Sensible likes it. I think Paul Weller it is, who I think it's his favourite album. <sighs> yeah, um, so the Off-White album, I was writing for that all the way through, and I was writing on the road. And then, of course, we had to promote the record, so we went to France, and we went to, uh, I think we were in Germany. Then we went. To, I went to Japan with Captain and Kevin in June, and then um, that was 94, and then, and then I came back and went to Iceland with the Icelandic cultural attaché who briefly became the ambassador for a while because he, he was a, a jazz musician who was really liked my poetry. And then I'd no sooner got back from there with raging toothache when I, I made a, a pilot for a film. Uh, and, and when I'd done that, I suddenly looked at the watch and it was like time to go to Japan again. And, and that's what happened to me. And so I was doing all this and that was 1994. It just went in a blur. Uh, and and so all, all this stuff was going on, but then we didn't get the album out in 1995. I can't remember why, but I think Humbug got taken over and it finally came out in early 96. Okay. I can't actually remember. I was doing lots of poetry. And 95, uh, I think I was going to be a father. I thought, I've got to make some money. So I went out to Germany, kind of touring just by myself for a bit, which was which was lonely and very knackering. You know, because Germany, I love Germany, love the Germans, love the beer. You know, so what am I doing? I'm out on my own, lonely in Germany, playing gigs, having a big fuss made of me, then going back to my lonely hotel room and just thinking, ha, ah, beer. Because that's what happens to you. And and it really does. And that's why I don't like to. And yeah, but more people should say no to it. And I think they'll have to now because it seems, it's always seemed very ungreen. You know, people battering on about saving the planet and take three ar Arctic trucks worth of gear out, out and go and do a massive great tour. I mean, how much of a carbon footprint does a Rolling Stones tour leave? You know, why not? And we've got all the technology not to have to do that. Stars should stay in their own areas and be big there, really. Saving, you know, just, I wouldn't mind that. Mm. Have them but come to you. <laughs> it's not a normal thing to do, especially not for kind of really touring. You should read that like the army. Men, men are old when they are 32 in the army. Their regards as getting a bit senior because your peak eight between 18 and 32. That's when you can go out and storm the world when you're a rock and roller. But, you know, you get up to about 40 and you start needing a bit of, bit more sleep. And the people who say they don't usually die young. <laughs> or they bolster themselves with silly, you know, the devil's dandruff, silly sherbet. <laughs> and I, I've never done that. I've, I've never sort of thought much of that. But I, I, I'm a demon for the drink. As soon as, I, as soon as I'm in a tour situation, it's like, where's, where's, the, where's the fridge? You know, where's the beer? Yeah, then you get a veranda over the toy shop as well, so you don't want that. <laughs> Too much beer. <laughs> Balcony over the playroom, as the Aussies call it. So let's talk about the tunes. Uh, Call Me Michael Moonlight, the opening track. Um, that was about, uh, it was about madness. I spent an awful lot of time in train stations and bus stations when I was making a great living Englishman. 
And Bath, as like Wivenhoe, like all healing places with Regency buildings, has more than its fair share of, of people who've been mentally ill. I met um, a, a woman who I surmised at some point had been a lawyer and she just burned out and she was she was mentally ill and she was talking to me in the, in the bus station in Bath and I just stayed and listened to her. That was one of her phrases. Ah. I, I, I gleaned between all this rubbish she was talking and she wasn't drunk. She just said, well, that's what it was like when I was in chambers. And I mean, it was just a case of call me Michael Moonlight. And I thought, fucking hell. And that lodged in there. First two things. First, that she was bonkers, mad and Secondly, that it was a great song title. <laughs> but I didn't write it down. It just wouldn't go away. Mm. It was a bit shocking, really, when you're confronted with stark madness. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, someone who's really got a disordered brain. That's terrible, that. And she was just sitting in a bus station. She was well-spoken. She was bright. She was bonkers. Yeah, I've, I, so I stayed to talk to her. Oh. Uh, that was one song, yeah. We've done the Smiths one. Uh, the World of uh, Dandy Lee. World of Dandy Lee was actually just my take on the music industry. Penny for you, shilling for me. This was the World of Dandy Lee. Mm. You know, I'll make you a star. I'll do this, I'll do that. Uh, people thought it w was... Um, uh, so I'll just get rid of that. People thought it was some kind of, um, that I'd done it about a person, but it was no one person. Okay. It was just the music industry. I realised once I was writing it that it was just the music industry as a whole. It was a composite character of, of, the, of the music industry. Hmm. You know, this, I'll do this for you. I'll do that for you. I'll make you a star. And when you are broken, going insane, Dandy will sing once again, penny for you, shilling for me. Probably, I don't know if it sounds bitter or not, but I was cross at the time because I realised uh, when I wrote it, well, how old I, would I have been? 40? No, I was younger. I was in my late, I was in my mid-30s when I wrote it. I realised that I spent all this time working and stuff, and the one thing I hadn't really done was make a lot of money from it. Hmm. I've made good records. I've done good work. It's amazing also how uh, critical respect in England will, will will take you quite a long way. I don't know why. Probably because the people who, who are the critics are middle class and overeducated. Um, but money will, will probably do more. They'll dislike you, but they'll have to torture you. Uh, I think I, I don't, I, don't I, I just wanted to do this job. I've been at it long enough now to know that I like music and I, I retain my huge enthusiasm for it. And I now seem to be getting paid for it as well. And uh, getting the royalties from songs I wrote years ago because I couldn't sell them at the time. That's never going to get anywhere. Now there are things really kind of, I'm being admired as an artist. And I said, well, well that's very good, but, you know, where were you 30, 40 years ago? You know, no one was calling me a fucking genius then. So why should anything change now? 
So I'm not I'm not going to the I won't go to you know, it's no no one's going to any parties, but there are a list of things that I won't go to or won't accept, even if they came to me. Nobody's asking me at the moment. The BBC don't really play my records or very infrequently. Uh, I think probably as a result of some of the things I've said, I'm fairly outspoken that I that they think, oh, we better not go near him. I think they probably regard me as a, a snarling, spitting yobbo. But uh, there's nothing that the establishment hates more than an intelligent, articulate yob. Mm. They like to be able to pat you on the head if you're stupid or welcome you back into the fold if you've come from a basically middle-class background. But I am neither. And, um, you know, I mean, one of these things I know, you know, there's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's great, isn't it? That's a good idea. That's something I'd never get involved in. Why? Because I thought you left school and you'd left with no qualifications and you became a pop star. And then, you know, you took a bit of this and took a bit of that and got in a couple of fights and just generally behaved like a complete scumbag for a bit until you got got the wisdom and became rather more polite and became a gentleman, which is what happened. Um, And you, but you don't go and put on when the businessmen who've made the money out of you decide to run an award scheme that you then put on their uniform, which is the black monkey suit and the, and the bow tie and go and sit down for dinner with them and have them say, you've done very well. I'm not interested in those people. I wasn't interested in them then. And I regard the bow tie as, as a kind of um, a sartorial swastika and I will never wear one. It's the it's the uniform of the enemy, as far as I'm concerned. I'm not sitting down with the fuckers, not even if they wanted me to. So I, I don't think that, um, you know, getting into the rock. I mean, you see people saying, why hasn't so-and-so been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? You know, who'd want that? Standing there like a fucking wazzard, you know, with a bow tie and all a monkey suit on and going, oh, thank you. I'm so grateful. I don't believe you've invited me in here. Best thing, just don't go. You know, like Peter Cook once said, I think, you know, the Peter Cook, the English satirist, who was invited somewhere and said, way up in the front, he looked in his diary and he said, unfortunately, I find I'm watching television that evening. <laughs> Fantastic. So funny. And the other the other classic one, the only cartoon he did, where someone comes up and she says, I'm writing a novel. And he said, yes, neither am I. <laughs> <laughs> I love Peter Cook. Yeah. Yeah, just such a funny geezer. Yeah. Anyway, oh. that's that's that. But the rest of the album, no, I, ju- I just like doing what I'm doing. I love making music and recording stuff. So that's what I do. It's not too much to it. Up next in the track order is Arcadian Boys, which sort of has a light jazz feel that you kind of explored more on the records after this okay boys it was done like a kind of bit, something from an opera louis had just me and a string quartet you know mm. just me and the london symphony symphony orchestra <laughs> 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 i was going to call it lick my love pump but I <laughs> <laughs> but but nigel nigel tufnell already got that title <laughs> so um yeah that was that was a, a kind of a poem really it was actually a sort of a poem. 
Arcadian boys. And Louis put that very fancy string quartet on it worked. But there's an earlier version of it as well with all echoey guitars, cleaners version of it. Have you ever heard that? I must have. Yeah. 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 So that that's very different. But um, oddly enough, people seem to like that one. And so James, the f- film director, is coming up here in a week or two to film me playing it. And I've suddenly realised it's probably a little bit too high for me now. So um, can I reach the piano? So I'd probably do it in this. Boy, do it a key down. Arcadian boys. So I'd do it in F and B flat and see see how that works out. Just kind of busk it. It's, it's only kind of two or three chords in it. But the lyrics are very arty and oblique, not norm, normal sort of thing I write, you know. Yeah. I mean, I can write it, but it's, you know, ordinary people saying, what's that about? <laughs> and I like ordinary people to understand what I'm doing. You know, they give you, the critics give you points for being difficult. They can stroke their stupid beards. And go, oh, yes, yes, very profound. Nobody knows what he was driving at there. Was it the human condition or had he somehow captured an earlier zeitgeist? I think, you know, I just couldn't think what to write, so I'll put that in. <laughs> um, when the Danzens are down, seems the most greatest living Englishman song on the record to me. Yeah, the Danzens down is like... Um, when I used to go and stay with my, my grandparents or I lived with them sometimes when, when my dad, who was in the army, was in England, was in, was in the Far East. And in autumn, there was this thing where we tidied up the garden and it was a damson tree down the bottom. It's a very narrow strip of a terraced house, but it had a couple of trees in it. And uh, you knew kind of when the damsons were down, and you, you had that bon- the autumn bonfire that, 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 you know, the summer was gone now, you know. Okay. So it mentions the Constable Skies and all the rest of it. And it was still close enough to me having been recently a gardener, doing a gardening job. Hmm. So that's, a, you know, really yeah, poems about England in the autumn. Okay. Sort of thing that people like me do. Miss Van Houten's <laughs> Coffee Shop. Great pop yeah. song. Someone asked me if that was about Lions Lions Coffee House, but which was a big coffee a chain coffee shop in England back in the fifties. You know, the sort of thing you see in Brief Encounter, where people in wartime uniforms stood and said, "Are you happy, darling?" I remember once when I was terribly unhappy, shortly after Johnny had been killed, when his Spitfire was shot down. There was, they said it would have been instant. That sort of thing, you know, and and. Um, it, it wasn't actually, it was about me going to cafes in the late 60s, you know, when I was about 14 or 15 and kind of um, looking at a, an old waitress of all of 19 or 20 when I was 14 or 15 thinking, oh God, I really love her. You know, that sort of thing, you know. Yeah, so it was kind of like that really. It wasn't about a Dutch coffee shop or dope or anything like that. It was, it was just about you know, and using those words of like you know, it couldn't care less to cheer or she would break my heart for cheer, all that you know, just mucking about. There's lots of names in the titles on this record. You've got Ursula, Phyllis, Miss Van. Hull, yeah, that's Michael. right. Yeah, there are. I do use a lot of names. I put. I either put situations or or give people 
or types of people names yeah I'm, i've got to get out of that habit there's a there's a few on the new album as well i was like to try and iron that yeah well uh phyllis of colchester was just this horrible woman who was i would say pretty common really going out with a bruiser draped in gold orange suntan from a holiday in spain but would look on somebody like me and nell when we were busking in a precinct, which we were licensed to do. We were actually licensed by the council to busk. Um, just looking at us like we were trash with her glittery eyes. Like that, you know, in a way that, you know, dragging on a cigarette, just looking at us like, you know, you're trash. And she kind of didn't get the point of that. And, and so I just wrote this very excoriating description of her described her lips as being like a stab wound in heat and all the rest of it. And her jewellery rattling like a busload of androids going home. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty nasty songwriting, really. My two favourites, actually two of my favourite songs of yours in, as a whole are the last two on the record, uh, Goodnight Country Girl and The Girls in the Flat Upstairs. Yeah, that's come out quite well. The girls in the flat upstairs. I listen. That comes in. It it comes in with that sweep of strings, yeah. and and it really sounds like it means business. This sounds like a big, big record. It sounds like a classic. Perhaps when I'm dead, it will be or something. But I can't see them recognizing me now. <laughs> well, there's nothing here for me now. <laughs> no, I can't. I can't uh, see. I can't see myself really being acknowledged in England so I just get on with what I do you know and I don't want to come out touring so they'll have to wait won't it till after I'm dead did you record Goodnight Country Girl in the woods yes we did yeah we recorded there's a picture of it that's that was that was an idea I was very up for it I said we, we should be recorded outside so we me and Joe and Louie and my dog and we went out and we we, we lit this we're very cold, clean, early winter day and just lit a little fire, you know, just so we could warm our hands on it, which you shouldn't really do in the woods, but it was in a big clearing. So, yeah. uh, you know, and I know how to keep it. So we got the fire going and the dog was there and recorded it on a mandolin with Louis with a handheld recorder. Wow. And we put a little bit on it when we went in the studio, little bit of backing vocals. I think Tiff did the, the deep voice. Yeah. It was me, that and Home County's Boy. That was that was the the acoustic down home country track for that particular album. Okay. It wasn't on a shopping list. Oh, we better get one of those. But you know, we didn't try to do it. We didn't try to do the greatest living Englishman again. There was no point. It was a very good album. I'm glad I did it. I had so much fun with Andy Partridge doing it. Um, but all it served to do was to prove that I could make a uh, what do they call it an album with conventional values if i wanted to but even so there are still certain american and uh, british hi-fi mags where the person who's writing it will, will say knowledge me of course you can see that they didn't have it truly high fidelity because there were so-and-so giveaway signs and the kind of patches they've used on the synthesizer and you because they've availed themselves of the knowledge, you know, of how it was made. So they could say that it, 
because otherwise they feel cheated. You know, such people worship the gear more than they do the, the art which is made on it. So they'll feel sort of cheated if you've gone into a shed and whacked out something that's actually pretty good. Mm. They'll, they'll pick holes in the, in the technological aspects of it. But in an age where technology has widely superseded the art form, I think that's a very foolish thing to do. You can see what's happened when you've got when the technology's progress has outstripped the art form. You've j you just get a bunch of well, basically people putting down a drumbeat and and chanting a nursery rhyme over it because the old ar arcane art of songwriting, such as Learn a Low, might have dashed off in an afternoon, has disappeared. Mm. I'm still studying it myself. Still studying how songs are written. But increasingly, I have to go into the past to find them. I find very little. You know, Sting and Elvis Costello can manage a song. They're, they're good. They're both really good. Sting especially. Fantastic. He's a master. And he gets sort of just a bit dismissed in England, really, by the critics. Oh, there he goes. There's Sting being all successful and everything. But that's what they like about him. You know, he's a, like a, a milkman's son from Geordieland. He's come from quite a humble background. And he's a top-notch songwriter and composer. He knows his shit. He's one of those people who said that if, if someone said, well, would you, you know, would you fancy Sting producing your album? I'd say, yeah, yeah, I, I would accept that because he would know, he would know what I wanted, what I meant. And uh, Elvis Costello, I, I don't find quite as likable but uh, you can see that he really he's a f huge fan of that art form known as a song bloody good and he's married to diana Krall as well because she is no mean feat she is no she is a, a, a you know really good musician she's one of those people i think oh i'll put some diana Krall on she's a bit good i'll never be able to play a piano as well as her yeah there's a few songwriters like that uh, but there aren't as many as perhaps there should be. Mm. And then people are surprised that they make so much money because they make money because they can do this magic called songwriting. And I can do it a little bit as well. I might just see who that is. So we've covered, yeah, pretty much all the songs. Any thoughts on the album as a whole? What, the Off-White album? Yeah. Um. Yeah, I've come to look at it. You know, I do a lot of stuff and I hadn't really thought about it a lot. And it, and, and it came out late and it coincided with quite a difficult time in my life when it came out. 1996, when it came out, wasn't a particularly auspicious year for me. It was a kind of a, a, a year when I had to struggle and sort things out and write things. And it, it was a, a couple of years where I was falling between the stills, two stills of music and poetry and trying to juggle both. And then 1907, it started to break again. And all the time, Britpop was the undercurrent of this. And there was this very much this feeling like, hey, I should be doing this stuff. Or at least, uh, but uh, 96, I was just kind of working and had this infant daughter as well, which I was thinking, how are we going to sort that one out? You know, get the money and rent and all the rest of it. And I did it. I took some unusual jobs, uh, you know, music and poetry jobs and residencies and trips to strange places. So the Off-White album is was associated with that so for ages i didn't listen to it and it's only recently i started to look at it and thought some of this is pretty good 
But um, I would probably, in retrospect, have bunged more echo on the vocals, that's all. But then that's just me being Mr. Lo-Fi. The whole idea of getting Louis in was I didn't make the vocals sound cheap or like somebody was on drugs, but, you know, and, and Louis wasn't. He was very straight-laced about it. No, and he just he magic up a string quartet. And I said, well, how are we going to tell him what to play? He said, I will write the arrangements. And he just would do that. And I was thinking, well, that's pretty. <laughs> hey, that's rocket science. <laughs> but I'm learning that myself now, but I don't read music like he does. Um, so I'm, you know, you'll find that I've just got this string composer thing now that I use. It's pretty amazing, but I have to learn how the strings are arranged now. So I'm learning. Going to be strings on the new record? Strings-ish. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, before I was using a DX27, you know, and the DX27 was has things that are like 19, yeah, 1980. Did it come out? 1985's version of what strings on a on a cheap synthesizer would sound like. When the DX27 was the budget version of the DX7, and it did have a thing that said cellos and violins, and they nearly they sound cello-ish in places and violin-ish in places. And I thought, well, you know, I'll just use them. But then I became very interested in how they worked. So I've got a new gizmo now, a Kurtz file. Um, it's it's a portable arranger, they call it. It's got the most extraordinary sounds, and I'm not doing product placement here, but you know, it, it's amazing. I thought I'm I'm going to see what happens when I just use these things. I, mean, I don't care what. Why would I care what anyone thinks? If it sounds good, it's okay, you know. Yeah. So I'm not going to bother what, about what musicians or critics think. I'm just using it. So it's, yeah, I'm using that. I've even done something that only had orchestral instruments in, and I'm going to bung that on the album as well. It's a little sketch of a national anthem. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. It sounds sounds like a bit of Elgar or something. Wow. Yeah. Cool. I know you got to get going. So, um, anything else you want to add about anything else you're doing? No, but watch out for the next album. That could probably come out in about June, I should think. So, no particular fanfare because we'll just release it on Bandcamp and and. Uh, but they do start to sell now. Great. Well, thanks very much, Martin. Yeah, it's well, it's nice to talk to you anyway, or nice to rant at you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. If you're unfamiliar with Martin's work, do check it out. A ton of pop gems in there. The Off-White album will be out on the 26th, and he's got that new album coming out in June, too. He played me a few tracks from it, and they're all really strong. It's going to be good. And he's even given me one to play the show out on. If you feel like picking up my Nick Cave's Bar album or book, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Online reviews are always appreciated. Same with subscribing or sharing this podcast. Do check out that quietest piece on Rizzico, too. A great piece of Berlin history. Thanks for listening, everybody. And until next time, I'm going to play you out with a brand new unreleased song from Martin Newell's upcoming album. This tune's called Sixpenny Novelette. He was a throwback to some much earlier time Dressed like his dad's dad Had done when still in his prime Out on his bone shaker Taking down the orders for a hipster baker He was an old-fashioned boy 
was a girl on his rounds. He spoke to her most days. She lived with her mum, some retired singer, certain her ways. There on her doorstep, in houndstooth check, she really looked quite retro. This was no ordinary girl. And out on the chalk down, when spring warms the small town, he suddenly summoned up some of what he wanted to say. Okay, and he said, Ah, Sally. Exactly, Megan and Harry, just you and me and the moon. And she said, <laughs> Yeah, okay. And soon 